Welcome everyone to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. My name is Finn Arne Jürgensen. I'm Dolly Jürgensen. And today we have with us uh, Liz Miller, who's a professor of English at University of California, Davis. Uh, and she's here to talk about her new book, Extraction Ecologies and the Literature of the Long Exhaustion, which came out at Princeton University Press in 2021. So we'll just give it over to you, Liz. Great, thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, I want to thank you both so much uh, for organizing this event and thanks to the audience for coming. Um, I'm here to talk about my book, Extraction Ecologies and the Literature of the Long Exhaustion. It came out in October and I really appreciate the opportunity and the invitation to reflect today on the methods and frameworks that I might that I use in, in examining extraction, extractivism, and literature in this study. Um, Dolly suggested that I might talk in these opening remarks about the argument of the book, the theory, evidence, or cases. So I will try to touch briefly on all of these uh, in my opening remarks before we move to discussion. So I'll start by talking about the scope of the book. My field of research expertise is 19th and early 20th century British literature. Um, but writing a book on extraction and extractivism transformed the frames of my research. Um, while the book still focuses on a delimited period of time, it attempts to position this period within broader contexts of earth history, the history of empire, and the history of capitalism. My geographical frame is also wider in this book than in my previous books, extending beyond Britain to explore its resource frontier and its formal and informal empire. <clears throat> the specific period on which the book focuses is the early 1830s, to, which um, saw the decisive shift to steam power in British manufacturing and distribution. And it ends in the late 1930s with the dawn of the nuclear era. So with this chronology, I don't want to, I'm not trying to convey a steady uh, sequential parade of energy regimes as though fossil fuels were unimportant before 1830 or ceased to matter when the expansion of atomic theory gave birth to a new vision of energy in the late 1930s. But what I do hope to capture is a period when Britain came to understand itself as an empire thoroughly dependent on extraction, an extraction-based industrial society irretrievably bound up with the mining of underground material with no viable alternative capable of preserving existing social relations. Mining has a long history, of course, but large scale industrial mining was born of the 19th century and extraction ecologies explores the magnitude of its socio-environmental impact, an impact that extends deeply into literature and culture. In this book, I interpret literary form and genre as signals for habits of mind and ways of thinking about the world that have material causes as well as long-term material effects. I take form and genre to be important objects of environmental analysis because they are epistemological structures that embed our fundamental conceptual formations. And they're also mobile and repeatable across time and space. Ursula Le Guin famously imagined stories as carrier bags which prompted Donna Haraway in her most recent book to wonder what the carrier bag for terraforming would look like. In its focus on literature and extraction, we might say that my book is concerned with this carrier bag for terraforming. Because of the durational qualities of language and form, literature engages with environmental materiality across time. And so it is a crucial archive, I think, for understanding extractivism and just as the rhythms of agricultural life and labor could be said to be bound up in the forms of the pastoral that we've inherited from past ages of literature, the age of industrial extraction produced its own sense of human natural relations and with it a new literature. So my methodology in the study is premised on the idea that extraction of underground mineral resources, so not only coal, but also gold, iron, tin, copper, silver, et cetera, et cetera, can be conceived of as a singular activity, and that this activity of extraction was bound up with a new cluster, <clears throat> excuse me, a new cluster of socio-environmental conditions. I use the term extractivism in the book to name a complex of cultural, discursive, economic, environmental, and ideological factors related to the extraction of underground resources on a large industrial scale. 
isn't to say I invented the term because of course I didn't, but um, but that's the particular definition I'm using in the book to think of the um, the complex of discursive economic environmental ideological factors um, surrounding extraction as a social base. Um, while there were important differences between say coal mining and gold mining, two major similarities yoke together the different forms of mineral resource extraction as a singular activity in the industrial imperial era. First, extraction of all kinds relied on the use of steam for the draining of mines, crushing of ore, transport of commodities, etc. Virtually every technological component of the extraction supply chain was phenomenally accelerated by steam power. So the accelerated extraction of coal in the early 19th century led to more intense exploitation of all subsurface resources and vice versa. So um, as Rolf Peter Seferli puts it, for example, quote, the abundance of fossil energy put metals into frenzied circulation as the metabolic basis of industrialization. Secondly, all these underground resources were connected by their material finitude and finitude and non-reproducibility above all distinguish mineral resource mining as an extractive process. Extractive industry can never benefit from regeneration or replenishment, but can only move on to a new vein or a new site. So it's this sense of finitude of removing something that is irreplaceable and that is subject to looming environmental limits that defines the structure of feeling around extraction ecology and as the literature shows us. Of course, the term extraction is now often used to describe other industries besides mining. Um, it has a much broader meaning in, in um, some areas of environmental discourse. Industries such as fishing and forestry most obviously uh, likewise involve the removal of raw material from a receptacle where it is ostensibly embedded. So trees from a forest or fish from the ocean, for example. And these industries are of course also subject to limits. Old growth trees don't regenerate on human timescales and worldwide fish populations have been decimated by centuries of overfishing. So forestry and fishing might seem to rely on the harvesting of finite resources in the same way as mining. And of course, many now fear too that soil fertility and biodiversity are likewise finite resources subject to extraction. Um, so while it's not unreasonable to say that we are now faced with apparent limits for almost every aspect of the natural world that we once considered cyclical, the air, water, soil, life itself, um, despite this current crisis of regeneration that seems to touch nearly every part of the natural world, my focus on the extraction of underground, I focus on the extraction of underground mineral resources because the mining industry presents the overwhelmingly dominant example of resource finitude in the context of historical thought from the 1830s to the 1930s. So trees and fish can, after all, grow and reproduce and be subject to reproduce, reproductive engineering of various kinds, whereas gold and tin cannot. In the industrial era, metal and mineral resources were defined in economic terms, in fact, by their special lack of regenerative capacity. So we can find an example of this in William Stanley Jevons's 1865 book titled The Coal Question, an inquiry concerning the progress of the nation and the probable exhaustion of our coal mines. He says, and this is a quotation that's um, frequently cited from this book, but he says, a farm, however, how far pushed, will under proper cultivation continue to yield forever a constant crop. But in a mine, there is no reproduction and the produce once pushed to the utmost will soon begin to fail and sink to zero. So exhaustion emerged in this era, uh, as this quotation suggests, and as the literature suggests, as a distinctive trajectory of extraction-based life. An extraction-based society economically grounded in the extraction of finite materials was understood to mean a society that was in a new way unsustainable for the long run. So in this way, British literature of the industrial era written in the context of the first fossil fuel powered society was in the remarkable position of confronting ideationally the mode of life that we all experience today, one where our social basis proceeds by depleting the future. 
My book shows how the literary archive from the 1830s to the 1930s expresses the imaginative idiom of industrial extraction, the discourse and vision that accompanied and undergirded material transformation of the world during this period that Jason Moore has called, uh, quote, peak appropriation on the resource frontier. Historically, scholars of the long 19th century have been quite attentive to mining social history, but they have not tended to consider mining within a larger ecology that includes humans and nature bound together. So a social natures or historical natures framework, such as I employ in the book, lets us consider together labor exploitation and environmental exploitation, racial capitalism and steam capitalism together. Another goal of the book is to reevaluate the period of the long 19th century through the lens of climate change as we understand it today, and to think about our present climate emergency in the context of longstanding economic, social, and cultural developments. So for example, my book explores across a historical parallel between what we might call the no future paradigm of the 19th and early 20th century, which was resource exhaustion, and the no future paradigm of today, which is climate change. Resource exhaustion did not turn out to be the fatal flaw of fossil-fueled industrial life that many thinkers in the 19th century predicted it would be. But, um, and in fact, in the case of fossil fuels, we have far too many of these resources underground for our own good. But the pervasive ideological framework of resource exhaustion that shadowed the rise of industrial mining in this period did occasion early reflection on the sustainability of this mode of ecological relations. And the literary archive shows that even in its early days, extraction-based life was conceptualized as a future depleting system. So I'm interested in my book in the question of what it has meant for us um, to be immersed in a culture and a literature that's so thoroughly saturated in extractivist thinking and its assumptions about the future. Um, before I end, I just wanna turn here briefly to some of my examples and case studies to give you a sense of the book's archive. My book is organized conceptually with three sections broadly devoted to three central categories, time, space, and energy, and also three corresponding literary genres, provincial realism, adventure literature, and speculative fiction. Each section explores extraction ecologies as a feature of this era's literature by drawing together multiple textual examples. Genre as a category of analysis offers something like a middle ground between close reading and distant reading, allowing us to see larger patterns in the literature without detaching us from the singularity and nuance of individual texts. Um, so environmental history and environmental knowledge require a long-term view. And the premise here is that literary genre and form carry ideas across historical periods in ways that transcend individual texts. Um, to plumb the archive of the literary archive of the past is to, to find discursive and conceptual formations that have remained with us, sometimes to our detriment and sometimes formations that have been left to the wayside and are, left, are worth revisiting today. So the first section of the book treats five novels, Joseph Conrad's Nostromo, George Eliot's The Mill on the Floss, a lesser known novel, called Jane Rutherford or the Minor Strike by an author named Fanny Maine that was published in 1854, um, Charles Dickens's Hard Times and D.H. Lawrence's Sons and Lovers. These five works are all set in the backwaters of global empire. And my concern in this section of the book is to demonstrate how the provincial realist novel incorporated exhaustion as a temporal structure to depict the new horizons of human life under extractivism. In these novels, Provincial realism's longstanding reliance on the marriage plot and the inheritance plot on providing closure via social reproduction, in other words, transforms against the backdrop of extractivism to withhold the promise of reproductive futurity. So we see a transformation in the trajectory and temporality of the provincial realist novel. And these texts that take place in settings of extraction or exhausted extraction sacrifice zones, as we might call them today, all explore the temporal structure of an extraction-based present claimed at the expense of future generations. The next section of the book turns from the temporal to the spatial imaginary and from realism to adventure writing. 
arguing that industrial era adventure literature exhibits a newly energized orientation toward the horizon of the resource frontier, stimulated by the constant search for new overseas loads that, char that characterize the extractivist age. So here I focus on adventure narratives that take place in Latin America and Africa, Mary Seacole's Adventures of Mrs. Seacole in Many Lands, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, two novels by Ryder Haggard, uh, one called Montezuma's Daughter and the, the other King Solomon's Mines. And I end this section with Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Imperial adventure narrative is premised on the treasure hunt story. So I focus really on the treasure hunt story at the heart of this genre and the idea of a treasure hunt on the frontiers of global empire. It was a genre born in the context of the mineral resource scrambles that dominated geopolitics at this time from the Mexican mining boom in the early 19th century to the South African mineral revolution at the turn of the 20th century. It's a genre that expresses the relentless global reach toward the frontier in the extractivist era. And finally, the last section of the book addresses the energy imaginary of the, of the industrial extraction boom and how this imaginary shaped the political and social projections of speculative literature. Um, so I look at speculative genres such as hollow earth fiction, utopian fiction, fantasy fiction, and um, the way that these genres burgeoned in the late 19th century alongside industrial extraction. My chapter or my section focuses on the ruminations of uh, the ruminations on energy and exhaustion that grounded speculative literature in this era. So my primary textual examples here are Edward Bulwer-Lytton's The Coming Race, Rokeya Sakawat Hussein's story, Sultana's Dream, a really interesting feminist energy utopia, uh, William Morris's utopian novel, News for Nowhere, H.G. Wells's The Time Machine, and finally, J.R.R. Tolkien's novel, The Hobbit. Extractive energy supplied the material conditions from which speculative fiction takes flight. And these world-building genres, I argue, offer imaginative resources for envisioning energy beyond extractivism, even as they narrate through their secondary worlds the really determinative role of energy in culture, environment, and society. Thanks very much for listening. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Liz. That was a great introduction um, to your book. And I mean, it, one of the things that struck me in your description of it is how many, I mean, you've, you've organized it into these kind of three genre categories, but you really engage with so many different novels and different authors and, you know, ways of, of, of them engaging with this question. And what you realize is, as you say, the extractive thinking then is showing how it's going across society. It's not restrictive to just one uh, type of, of book or just one author or genre. Um, so. I was wondering as a, as a first question um, about the undergroundness of mining. And if you see a, a, a difference or a, a specific thing that happens with mining that is, is deep in the ground, in, in the kind of hidden subterranean versus open pit mining that's somehow more exposed and, and open, it, it, you know, does that matter that it's, that it's dark and hidden and secretive and tunnels um, versus being open where people see it? Yeah, thank you. That's um, a really interesting question. I mean, the, the hiddenness and the concealment of mining, um, you know, in, in the, our, regular visual encounters with the world. This does come up quite a bit in the literature um, in different ways, you know, um, depending on the, the genre and the part of the world it's set in and so forth. But um, in the provincial realist novel, for example, there's um, the novels that I'm looking at are set in mining districts, but most of them, there's very little that happens underground. And, you know, when the characters do go underground, it's sort of like, you know, this major momentous event in the book rather than being the setting in which the novel takes place. So, I mean, it is kind of curious that you're depicting a mining community, but you actually have very little of the novel set in the mine, even though, you know, the, the 
the premise that, you know, that the community is based on mining, you know, fundamentally, economically and socially as part as part of the book. And so I think part of, partly this has to do with, um, you know, the middle class nature of the novel and the fact that a lot of these novel writers really didn't have that much familiarity with mines. But, um, but there is also a sense, you know, where some of the writers will say something like, um, there's, there's not that much to see underground, like um, Anthony Trollope, for example, in he has this novel, um, John Caldicate about this character who goes off to Australia, you know, makes a fortune in the gold mine, um, and then comes back to England and buys an estate and everything. And the whole section where he's in Australia in the gold mine, Trollope basically says, there's nothing less interesting than, you know, than a, than a mine. So it just kind of skips that part, you know, so it's, it's this, um, this, uh, kind of class-based, but, but deeper than that, I think, you know, sort of refusal to engage with the underground settings and, you know, the, the, the labor and the exploitation that, that takes place there. Um, in the adventure genre, it's a little bit different where there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of landscape description um, in this genre. And, and there's a lot of interest in like what features of the above ground landscape, you know, can tell us what riches are underground. So, so, so there's a very, there's a very um, geological imagination, I think, happening where you're, you're sort of going over into this unfamiliar part of the world and trying to ascertain like what's below ground and reading the, you know, um, the landscape accordingly. Um, but again, focus more on the above ground than the below ground, but thinking about the two in relation to each other. Then finally, with the speculative fiction, I mean, there is the, you know, emergence of the hollow earth genre in this period, um, sort of like science fiction or utopian novels that are set in underground worlds. And um, even in, you know, speculative fiction that's not hollow earth fiction, a lot of times there's an underground interlude, like you could think about the Hobbit and the, you know, the various creatures that live underground in that novel. So in speculative fiction, you know, there is this kind of fascination you know, with the underground world, which I think, uh, uh, you know, relates to, to mining and the kind of conception of having a mining based society and so forth, thinking about like, you know, what are, what are um, the sort of what possibilities are there for, you know, humans to be in this part of the world to, to live there and so forth. And so sometimes there's these kind of like fantasies of, you know, having an underground civilization and so forth. Anyway, I hope that gives you a, a sense. I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a broad um, uh, area of interest in a lot of literatures in this period in terms of how do we conceptualize the underground? How do we conceal the underground? Um, but that imaginary is, is really important to the literature. Well, so then in that underground extraction activity, and you, you brought up, for example, um, The Hobbit. Um, so the, the idea of, of goblins and dwarves and, and things using the underground, they actively mine. Um, I'm wondering about the, in, in these portrayals, if they end up to be mostly negative so are your protagonists do, do they um you know can they have an underground life and be the the winners in the story or you know are they somehow always bad because of the the tie to extraction yeah i mean there there is a really pervasive trope of like the cursed treasure that that really you see in all of these genres not just in the more kind of like magical genres like like the hobbit but even in in the realist novels i mean there there is often this this sense of you know like underground winnings carrying some sort of burden or, or curse alongside of them and um often you get this kind of figure of, you know, the character who's kind of like taken over by whatever resource they're mining, they become obsessed with it. I mean, um, Joseph Conrad's novel, Mastromo is an, is an example of this, where the, you know, the main character has a silver mine in South America. And, you know, there, there's a passage that describes the, the silver kind of like entering his blood. And, and so this, um, this idea of it having a, a negative effect is, you know, very, very strong. I mean, the resource in particular and getting like too bound up with the underground mineral resources 
Um, but in terms of your question of, you know, are there characters that have a kind of like positive association with the underground? Um, in a novel like D.H. Lawrence's Sons and Lovers, the, the father in that novel is, is a coal miner. And D.H. Lawrence actually came from a mining family. So he's a little bit different from a lot of the authors that I study, you know, because his father was a miner, his uncles were a miner, but, um, or his uncles were miners. Um, but, but, the, but in this case, the father, although there's a lot of like negative effects associated with him being a miner, it also talks about how he has become really comfortable underground. And, you know, when he's home, he closes all the blinds in the house because he doesn't like having the light coming in. So this sense of, you know, kind of like adapting to underground environments um, you see in, in that novel. And also in, I think, a novel like The Time Machine where you have, you know, your the time traveler visits the future where humans have kind of like split off into these two different species. And one of them, uh, lives underground, the Morlocks. And a lot of the early reviews of the novel saw the Morlocks quite directly as the descendants of miners, um, you know, that, that mining, that mining and extractive industry had, you know, sort of eventually affected evolutionary processes such that there was a whole, you know, species of humans or post-humans who lived underground. So, um, so that's of interest too. I mean, there, there's, there, it usually has a negative effect, but there, but there is also this interest in what are the kind of like adaptive, um, you know, capacities of underground life for humans. Well, and Christopher wrote a comment in the chat about this reminds me of the company town, Haiti, or the yeah, company town of Hades town in a musical called Hades Town, uh, where people living a meager and desperate existence on the surface seek unemployment in Hades Town under the ground from whence they can't escape. So that kind of trope is still actually something um, that that we continue to have. Yeah, it's a musical. I don't know. I don't know. No. I was wondering a bit about the relationship between the the overground and the underground, I guess, because mines they are located on or under land and land that is often inhabited by people uh, that in recent years, at least, I know particularly from, from Northern Sweden, uh, there's been significant debates about decolonializing, uh, you know, these, these relations that were established in this kind of extractive framework. Uh, so do you see this come up as a theme in the books you looked at? Yeah, this, you mean a kind of theme of dispossession that yeah, the, the, the land is taken away? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in terms of like the literature that's set in Britain, there's the kind of long shadow of enclosure. And, you know, the, um, although this doesn't always come up exactly directly, but um but this sense that, you know, enclosure was part of what enabled the rise of the extraction economy because, you know, the land being privately held, um, you know, legally enabled the owners of the land, right, to, to mine the land. Um, whereas in commonly held land, then the resources underground would be common, which would just, you know, create a different kind of like economic structure around extractivism um, than the, the, privatized one that emerged. So, so yeah, so, um, so enclosure does come up quite a, quite a bit. Um, I think, you know, that, that memory of the enclosure of common lands, although legally it was mostly complete by the 19th century, it's still, you know, very strong in that period. And H.G. Um, Wells actually mentions enclosure directly in the time machine as one of the kind of like preconditions that led to, you know, the separation of the human race into these two species that it had, you know, that the above ground lands essentially were being claimed by, you know, like a few wealthy people and it had driven, you know, poor people underground um, as a result of, of that enclosure. Um, and then in the, the works that I look at that are set overseas, um, it's different because you're talking about, you know, a kind of like imperial dispossession of indigenous lands. And um, the two main you know, parts of the world that I'm interested in, in, in the sections of the book that are looking at um, the wider empire 
are um, Latin America and Africa. And the reason why I decided to focus on those books is, or sorry, those um, parts of the world is because that's where the vast majority of adventure novels, you know, were set in, in Britain. So I was really surprised by this initially because I thought given how big the Australian gold rushes were, you know, in the California gold rush, I thought there would be more novels, you know, set in those parts of the world. But, but what became clear just looking at the, the literary archive is that, you know, there was something particular about Latin America and Africa, you know, in terms of inciting this extractive imagination that I think, you know, um, undergirds that imperial treasure hunt story. Um, and I think it has to do with the sense that these were parts of the world that were there, you know, to be extracted. I mean, that's the kind of like mentality. Um, so, so there's, you know, uh, references to indigenous mine workers in some of the literature that's set in Latin America. Um, but, you know, they're, they're not, uh, they're, um, most of the novels don't really, you know, focus in on the question of dispossession. I mean, the, the workers are, um, there and they're sort of like, you know, in a lot of the novels, they're, they're not quite being forced to work the mines, but clearly there's a lot of, you know, um, structures in place that are forcing them to work in the mine. It's a kind of forced labor situation, even if um, it's, it's indirect, even if it's happening economically and through, you know, uh, the forces of dispossession. But, but, I, but I wouldn't say that those characters' point of view get much airing in literature of this period. Um, there is there is one novel, um, Ryder Haggard's Montezuma's Daughter, which is like you know it's a totally imperialist novel. I'm not trying to say that that it that it um, that it isn't, but it does have some uh, indigenous characters who are resisting um, European imperialism. And in, and there's one section of the book where they actually take all their treasures and they bury them underground, you know, so that the Europeans can't find them. So it's an it is an interesting moment of kind of like resistance to, um, you know, the claiming of those lands and those resources uh, from Europeans. But then, you know, the, the novel says something like, and those treasures are still there if anyone can find them, you know, so it sort of also uses this as an invitation, um, you know, for more uh, extractive um, overseas uh, endeavors. But yeah, so I think, um, to get back to your question about land, you're absolutely right that, you know, that to, to seize the resources requires seizing the, the surface land as well. And you do see dispossession happening both, you know, in England and on the imperial frontier. Although I think, you know, in general, the, the parts of the books that are set in other parts of the world don't give as much voice to the kind of like loss of lands experienced by um, indigenous peoples. Yeah, and one of the things you had mentioned um, I, in, in reference to the other question was also how people could read the land as signs of what was below the land, um, you know, so what was under it. And that kind of gets to Micah's question uh, here in the chat. She said, you spoke a bit about the use of the word extraction, what you meant by extraction. And mm -hmm. so she was wondering, could you talk about the other half of the title, the ecology, uh, how are you using the word ecology in your text so that when it's together with extractive, so extractive ecology, what does that mean to you? Mm -hmm. um, thanks, yeah. I think um, one of the reasons that I became interested in the term ecology early on was because it, you know, it's coined in the 1860s um, by Ernst Haeckel. And so it, it was really interesting to me that sort of at, you know, the heyday of, coal imperialism or, or, you know, the rise of the coal economy in Britain, you also have, you know, the um, emergence of this concept of ecology, you know, which we can kind of, uh, I mean, obviously it wasn't only Hackle that, you know, produced this new concept, but you could think of the word as sort of crystallizing this idea of deep interconnection, right? That, that um, the, the kind of relationality and interconnection of the natural world and the fact that you can't you can't sort of um, you know take one one part out and understand it without paying attention to all the complex webs of relations in which it's embedded, right? So that's how I'm understanding the term ecology. And what I'm interested in by pairing those two terms is that they're really quite oppositional, right? Because extraction is about kind of like pulling something out 
from a place that it's embedded and you know uh really you know turning it into a commodity um with with value whereas ecology is about these kind of like deep webs of interrelation that mean that you can never really extract something without affecting everything else right um so that was kind of like the tension between the two terms that i wanted to explore um and the fact that they're both kind of emerging at the the same time was interesting to me um in terms of what an extraction ecology is um so i think I'm interested in the idea of an extraction ecology, both on the local level and on a planetary or global level. Um, with the local level, you know, this idea of like what happens to a place once you know it's been mined or extracted, and particularly after it's been abandoned. There's a lot of abandoned mining sites in the literature that I'm studying, um, like in Hard Times, Charles Dickens's novel Hard Times. For those of you who've read that one, there's an abandoned mine shaft that you know one of the main characters falls in and, and dies at the end of the novel. Um, George Eliot's Mill on the Floss. There's an abandoned quarry that's a really key setting in the novel. So these these sites of like abandoned or exhausted extraction pop up all the time. And so thinking about an extraction ecology you know, as, as this um, kind of like disturbed environment, right, that, that a new ecology emerges in. Um, so that's part, that's the kind of like local conception of extraction ecology that interested me. But in terms of the planetary or global the imaginary, um, this is, you know, the extent to which extraction is understood to kind of create like, you know, a new, a new planetary or, or global ecology. And of course, now with climate change, we can we can see that very clearly, right? How how the fossil fuel extraction has, you know, kind of produced this new, um, you know, planetary um, ecology um, with global warming and so forth. But but even in the 19th century, I think there's already, you know, some conceptions of the way in which extraction is, is kind of changing the world. And, and the main way that they conceived of it in the time was through this this idea of resource exhaustion, right? That that as mines were exhausted, you had to go on to a new site. And so it was kind of like this endless process of exhaustion that, you know, um, on, a, on a planet that was seen as becoming like more finite and more kind of like used up um, even in the 19th century. So yeah, I hope that answers the question. I think it was a great answer. Um, and Gabriella was wondering about senses. So you mentioned that it, it is typically that not much of the action is happening, if you will, in the mine itself. But so are there different ways of sensing um, the extractive ecology? Um, you know, is it is it touch, sight, smell, hearing that show up in these works of so the way that you know that something is going to be exhausted, for example? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, you're right that the there is a um there there is there is a kind of privileging of the visual i think overall you know in these novelistic worlds where the fact that it's dark underground is a big part of why it seems unnarratable um in the novels that <clears throat> are set underground i mean the more the speculative genres that you know have creatures that live underground there there is sometimes um attention to the way that their senses have adapted to those conditions to allow them to uh, live underground. So um, the Morlocks, for example, in the time machine um, have developed, they have these, you know, um, really large eyes that allow them to, to see underground, but they also have these kind of like um, almost tentacles. So I guess that's an example that maybe that is the best example to your question in particular, like, are there other kind of, um, I don't know, are there other ways of imagining, you know, uh, exploration of the underground that don't privilege sites? So the, the Morlocks and their tentacles kind of feeling around would be one example. But I mean, even in The Hobbit, there's a lot of creatures who have adapted to live underground and, and um, Tolkien even talks about them kind of like evolving to those conditions. So there is a kind of like evolutionary imaginary at work in some of these texts that that thinks about the way that the senses could adapt to those dark conditions. 
Well, so Denise had a question about a remembrance. Uh, so the memory of extraction, and you mentioned sites that had been, you know, abandoned, right? Mm -hmm. Which is kind of a way of talking about a site after it's no longer used, right? So, so there's some memory or remembrance of that site. Um, and so the question is, are there particular modes of remembrance of these kind of sites that you analyze and conceptualize you know, beyond the social and the cultural, perhaps gesturing towards planetary memory. So is there something bigger than than the local social context? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, when I first started looking at your question about memory, the first thing that came to mind was the um, memorialization of um, victims of mining disasters, because of course, you know, there were you know, frequently big mining disasters in this period that killed hundreds of miners at, at once. And um, in Britain, there there are often memorials in mining towns, you know, to the victims of these disasters. And one of the novels that I look at, um, uh, Jane Rutherford or the Miner Strike, has a, a it's based on an actual mining disaster that um, happened in this period. But um, but anyway, there's a there's a, an accident that happens in the book and um, 12 people die, including, you know, many of whom are children, which was also common um, in these disasters because, you know, there were a lot of uh, young people that worked in the mines. Um, and at the end of the book, they're, they're putting up a memorial to the people lost in, in the mining disaster. So there, there is this interest in memorialization, but, you know, you're, but then when I got to the end of your question, where you're asking about planetary memorializing um, and thinking about like the memory of the, the space that's sacrificed as opposed to the people, um, I can't really think of too many examples of that. I mean, you see it sort of in a... Um, uh, Almost, um, almost supernatural register in some of the books. Like there's a there's a place there's there's a spot in Joseph Conrad's novel Nostromo where um, you know it's said to be like blighted and a cursed place and nobody should go there. So I guess it's kind of a negative form of memorialization. But they talk about how there were these you know gringos that came there like in search of silver and you know one of them killed each other and now the spot's been sort of like forever forever marked so i don't know maybe it's not memorialization exactly but but that's one example i can think of where the place itself is kind of marked as opposed to like a a, a memorial that's put up by people well, and Christopher had kind of the opposite observation, which is sometimes the underground is described as a refuge for disaster. So, right. So negative things can happen there, but also you can be saved um, from the disasters all around you. Um, and he brought up the mining shafts and Dr. Strangelove. So the vaults and the fallout video game series. So that kind of nuclear disaster, you often then are doing exactly the opposite. You want to go underground in order to survive, which is interesting to think about in terms of this extractive ecology then. Yeah, there's a there's a novel um, from 1901 called The Purple Cloud. I don't know if any of you have read it, but there's but it but it's a kind of science fiction novel that imagines there's this toxic gas that you know um, covers the whole earth and the only survivor is this guy who was up at the North Pole when, when it happened. And so when he comes back, he takes a boat back to England and then he spends like a year going in all the mining shafts. He finds like a, an ordnance survey map with all the mines in Britain. And he, he keeps thinking if he goes through all the mines, you know, eventually he'll find a survivor. So, um, so yeah, that's that kind of thinking of it as, as a, a refuge from, you know, um, toxicities of, above ground. Um, you see that already emerging in this period. Well, Ariane had a question about the time section, mm -hmm. uh, so which was one of your organizing principles uh, in thinking about the literature. So have you detected a discourse about deep time um, in this particular literature? So especially because I think extractive ecologies, if we think about a capitalist extraction, it tends to be, in a, as you said, very short time scale, right? You want to take as much as you can right away, and then you're going to move to another site. 
Um, and so how, you know, does deep time show up in these novels so that extraction might touch on the future, but it also, is there something about the past so that you're, as she puts it, digesting millions of years of the planet and planetary evolution in this extractive process? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I found this a lot in the um, economic and you know, social science literature, the period where there would be this kind of wonder, how could, you know, this coal take millions and millions of years to be formed only to be used up in 100 or 200 years? It's really dizzying when you think about it. And, and so there was, you know, as um, a widespread sense of, you know, of deep time became, you know, more kind of culturally available in this time. And as people you know, tried to grapple with the sublimity of those timescales in which these resources had formed. Um, I mean, you did often see that kind of sense of contrast between, you know, the really like speeded up um, timescale on which it was imagined these resources were going to be burned up, you know, versus the amount of time that, that they formed. And I think, you know, in terms of the literary imaginary, you do sometimes see these kind of reflections on deep time, you know, characters going into caves, for example, in King Solomon's Mines, they, they go into uh, a cave as part of, you know, entering into this diamond mine, and there's stalactites and stalagmites in the cave, and they talk about how, you know, they, they only grow like a couple millimeters a year, and so, you know, the eons of time it would have taken for them to develop into this. So, so oftentimes there are these moments um, where we are asked to kind of like reflect on the, you know, really deep timescales um, on which geological change happens and which coal is formed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then you also have this kind of like notion of the speeded up present that you were just mentioning Dolly, where, you know, things get used up really quickly and everything is based on kind of like short-term profit speculation. Um, and then you also have the kind of imaginary of the future, of a, of a depleted future, which hangs over the text as well. So, so I think, you know, there, there's kind of like multiple um, temporalities that are inhabited in the literature. And, and oftentimes the way that they are not commensurate with each other is a sort of subject of interest and wonder in the text. So I wanted to ask about... Um... You know, underground inhabitants and laborers, because we've heard a fair amount about them, but they've been human or, I guess, derived from humans, fantastical creatures, uh, and so on. But do you see any traces of more than human, so animals, etc.? Because I mean, I've done my share of looking at mining archives and going into mining tours, and what you realize, I mean, they're there's very rich animal life, both, you know, natural life, bats, etc., but also animals being put to work in, in the mining then. So is this a theme that came up or is it really just concerned with, with people and similarities? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the, you know, the ponies that worked underground, for example, you know, many of whom lived under, lived their whole lives underground, um, this is something that I came across a lot in my research on mining in the period and that I was always really struck by. Um, and also how many would die in the mining accidents. I mean, sometimes that would be mentioned too, like in addition to 200 workers or whatever, you know, they mentioned this many, this many horses perished um, in the flooding of a mine and so forth. So, um, so you're absolutely right, you know, that this was like a multi-species environment and um, that animals were being put to work underground, you know, and, and so it's interesting because really like a lot of the book is about the industrialization of mining and the way that mining was speeded up by steam engines. But of course, there's also still, you know, a huge reliance on those older energy forms, horses and animal power, right? Um, so it's not, it's not as though one is replacing the other, but it's, it's more like accelerating um, the energy formation that was already there. 
Um, but I would say in terms of like literary representation, you know, there isn't that much attention to the animals underground. The one example I could think of is um, in Sons and Lovers, the, the mining, the father who's the miner, you know, he has a kind of like mouse friend <laughs> that, you know, that he feeds some cheese when he's on his snack break underground in the, in the mine. And, um, you know, of course, the, the mice is a reminder that there's also whole ecosystems of animals that develop underground, you know, not because they're being worked there, but because, you know, they're being brought down there by the, the you know, the food um, made available because of the mining environment and so forth. So, um, so that, you know, definitely in terms of the um, historical literature, I read, I got a, a strong sense of the involvement of animals, but I didn't see it, it as much reflected in the um, literary archive, which is an interesting question as to why, but um, nevertheless, that's what I found. So I was just wondering um, for our closing minutes, um, what's next uh, for you? Are you uh, Have you thought about what kinds of, of literature is this, are you going to continue to think about uh, either extractivism or ecologies uh, or both, or are you moving into some other direction? Um, that's interesting. I haven't figured out yet what I'm going to do next. Um, I wish I had a better answer. I think um, I one thing I've gotten intrigued with lately is thinking about the blue humanities and you know oceanic networks. I mean, I think I want to try to continue to to think in terms of imperial and global frames for understanding um, environmental change and environmental exploitation, especially in the long 19th century. I'd like to think a bit more about um, the oceanic and I don't know if that'll end up being sort of about extraction and oceans and, you know, coal stations and, and things like that, or if I would, you know, be moving away from extraction more toward oceans, but that's, I have a sabbatical next year. And like one of my plans is just to try to read widely, you know, in some of this um, new work uh, on, um, you know, on oceanic humanities and, and to get my grounding there. But, but yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly where I'm going to go next. So <laughs> I, there's like so much new work coming out and I'm looking forward to having a period of just kind of like reading and and taking things in as I figure out what to do next. Well, that's not a bad thing to have. Um, and as you say, figure out where, I mean, I think there, there's just going to be some interesting places in which they do meet um, in thinking about what kind of extraction um, we do in the oceans um, and how that's, that shows up in the, in the literatures, both in terms of, um, you know, obviously whaling um, as, a, as an activity, but, but other types of things like going to guano islands um, and how that functions or how you think about island communities and yeah, in your treasure hunt stories, right? Um, that can happen in, in oceanic spaces too. So I think there's some really nice things and do let us know if you're interested in coming to Stavanger uh, while you have time to uh, sit and read. Um, oh, so we thank you very much uh, for coming today. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have with us Liz Miller uh, talking about her book, Extraction Ecologies and the Literature of the Long Exhaustion, which came with uh, Princeton University Press in 2021. So thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>